the tradition. The noises outside the little flat at first were very discordant. After living in the country, they made sleep difficult, and a cottage in Sussex where the family lived might brought deep comfort for all silence unless the wind was high and the pine trees round the duck pool made a sound like surf or the girl was from the southwest. The orchard roared a bit unpleasantly. But in London it was very difficult. Sleep was easier in the daytime than at night. For after nightfall the traffic became spasmodic. Instead of continuous, the motor horns startled like warnings of alarm. After comparative silence, the furious rushing of the taxi cab touched the nerves. For the furious rushing from the dinner till the eleven o'clock, the streets subsided gradually. Then came the army from theatres, parties, and late dinners, hurrying home to bed. The motor horns during this hour were lively and incessant, like bugles of a regiment moving into battle. The parents rarely retired till this attack was over. If quick about it, sleep was possible, then before the flying of the night birds, a certain squadron screamed half the street awake again, but these funniest posed of a delightful hush settled down upon the neighbourhood, profounder far than any piece of the countryside. The deep rumble of the produced wagons coming in to the big London markets from the farmers' farms during about 3 a.m. held no disturbing quality. But sometimes, in the stillness of every very more early morning, the streets were empty and pavements all deserted, there was a sound of another kind of startling and unwelcome. For it was ominous, it came from a clattering violence that made nerves quiver and forced the heart to pause and listen. A strange resonance was in it. A volume of sound, however, that was hardly justified by its cause. For it was hoofs of a horse swept hurrying up the deserted street and close upon the building in a moment. Is audible suddenly, no gradual approach from the, a distance, but as though it turned a corner from soft ground and muffled the hoofs on the echoing hard paving, it amplifies the dreadful clatter. Nor did it die away again when once the horse was reached, house was reached. It ceased as abruptly as it came, the hoofs did not go away. It was mother who heard them first and drew her husband's attention to this agreeable quality. It's the mail vans, dear, he answered. They go at four a.m. to catch the early trains into the country. She looked up sharply as though something in his tone surprised her. But there's no sound of wheels, she said. And then he did not reply. He, she added gravely. You have heard it too, John, I can tell. I have, he said. I have heard it twice. And then, and they looked at each other, searching, each trying to read the other's mind. She did not question him. She, he did not propose writing, complain in a newspaper. Both understood something that neither of them understood. I heard it f at first, she said. 
then said softly, the night before Jack got the fever. So I listened, I heard him crying. But when I went to see, in the sea, he was asleep, and only stopped just outside the building. There was a shadow in her eyes as he said this. A hush crept in between her words. I did hear it go, did not hear it go, she said. This almost beneath her breath. He looked a moment at the ground, and coming towards her, he took her in his arms and kissed her. She clung very tightly to him. Sometimes, he said in a quiet voice, a mounted policeman passes down the street, I think. It is a horse, she answered, but whether it was a question or more collaboration, he did not ask, for at that moment the doctor arrived, and the question of little Jack's health became a paramount matter of immediate interest. The great man's verdict was uncommonly disquietly. During that night they sat up in a sick room. It strangely still as though by one accord the traffic avoided the house where a little boy hung between life and death. The models even had a muffled sound, a heavy drains of wagons used the wide streets that were fewer taxicabs about, or else they flew by noiselessly, yet no straw was down. Expensive provided that, and towards morning, very early, the mother decided to watch alone. She had been a trained nurse before marriage, custom when, when she was younger to long vigils. You go down, dear, and get a little sleep, she urged in a whisper. He's quiet now. Five o'clock, I'll come for you to take my place. You'll fetch me at once, he whispered, if, and hesitated to those breath failed him. A moment he stood there, staring from f- her face to the bed. If you hear anything, he finished, he nodded. He went downstairs to his study, not to his bedroom. He left the door ajar. He sat in darkness, listening. Mother, he knew, was listening too, beside the bed. His heart was very full, for he did not believe the boy could live till morning. The picture of the room was all the time before his eyes. The shaded lamp, the table medicines, the little wasted figure beneath the blankets, and another close beside it, listening. He sat alert, ready to fly upstairs at the smallest cry. But no sound broke the stillness. The entire neighbourhood was silent. All London slept. He heard the clock strike three in the dining room. At the end of the corridor, it was still enough for that. There was not even a heavy rumble for single produce wagon. Though usually they passed about this time on their way to Smithfield, the covered garden markets. He waited far too anxious to close his eyes. At four o'clock, he would go up and believe the vigil. Four, he knew, was a time when life sinks to its lowest ebb. Then, in the middle of his reflections, thought stopped dead. It seemed his heart stopped too. Far away, but coming nearer with extraordinary rapidity, a sharp, rear, clear sound broke out of the surrounding stillness of horses' hoofs. At first, it was so distant, it might have been almost on the high roads of the country, but amazing speed with which he came closer and sudden. Increase of beating sounds 
was such that by the time he turned his head, he seemed to have entered the street outside. He was in a hundred yards of the building, the second, next second, he was before the very door, and something had been belched. He knew of moments complete paralysis, paralysis. The abrupt sensation of the heavy clatter was strangest of all. It came like lightning. It struck. It paused. It did not go away again. The sound of it was still beating his ears. He dashed upstairs three steps at a time. It seemed in the house as well. On the stairs behind him, a little passageway inside the very bedroom. It was a appalling sound. He entered a room that was quiet, orderly and calm. It was silent. Beside the bed, his wife sat, holding Jack's hand and stroking it. She was smoothing him. Her face was very peaceful. No sound, but a gentle whisper was audible. He controlled himself by tremendous effort. Put his hand as betrayed, but his face betrayed his consternation and distress. Hush, she said. Beneath her breath, he's sleeping much more calmly now. The crisp bless, the crisis bless, God is over. I didn't believe I dared not leave him. He saw in a moment that she was right, and then tenderable relief passed over him. He sat down beside her, very cold yet perspiring with heat. You heard? he asked after a pause. Nothing, she replied quickly, except his pitiful wild words. When the delirium was on him, it passed, it lasted but a moment, or I would have called you. He stared closely into the tired eyes. His words, he asked in a whisper, whereupon she told him quietly. The little chap was set up with wide-eyed eyes and talked excitedly about a great giant, great, great horse he heard, but not coming for him. He laughed and said he would not, would not go with it because he was not ready yet. Some scrap of talk he had overheard from us, she added, when we discussed the traffic once. But you heard nothing, he repeated almost impatiently. No, she heard nothing. After all, then, he had dozed a moment in his chair. Four weeks later, Jack, entirely convalescent, was playing a restricted game of hide-and-seek with his sister in the flat. It was really a forbidden joy, owing to noise, risk of breakage. But he was unusually privileged after his grave illness. It was dusk. The lamps in the street were being lit. Quietly remembering your mother's resting in a room where her father's orders. She had just returned from a week by the sea, recuperating from the strain of nursing for so many nights. The traffic rolled and boomed along the streets below. Jack, do come on and hide. It's your turn. I hid last. But the boy was standing spellbound by the window, staring hard at something on the pavement. Sybil called and tugged in vain. Tears threatened Jack, could not budge. He declared he saw something. Oh, you always seeing something. I wish you'd go and hide. It's only because you can't think of a good place, really. Look, he cried in a voice of wonder. I said it, said it. His father rose quickly from his chair before the fire. Look, the child repeated with delight and excitement. It's a great big horse. He's perfectly white all over. 
His sister joined him at the window. Where, where? I can't see it. Oh, do show me. The father was standing close behind them now. I heard it. He's whispering, but so low the children did not notice him. His face was colour of chalk. Straight in front of our door, stupid. Can't you see it? Oh, I do wish it come for me. Such a beauty. Clutched his hands with pleasure and excitement. Quick, quick, he's going away again. But while the children stood half squabbling by the window, the father leaned over the sofa, adjoining room, above a figure whose heart in sleep was quietly stopped its beating. The great white horse had come, but this time he had not only heard its wonderful rival, he also heard it go. It seemed he heard it drift awful hoofs beat down the sky, far away, very swiftly, dying in silence, into silence, running up among the stars.